Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. And Nadia. Welcome, Hannah. Can you uh, just introduce yourself, tell everyone um, what you do? Yeah, my name is Hannah Mushabek, and I am a children's book author. You're, you're going on a book tour soon for one of your books, right? That's right. So yeah. I also work in publishing so like books are i kind of live and breathe books for my every waking moment um and after 10 years of being in the publishing industry in april i published my debut book which is a picture book for children called homeland my father dreams of palestine and as you can imagine um it is certainly uh has been met with controversy in in recent months yeah and I guess in what ways, like what context have, have you been seeing that happen? Yeah, so um, there was a, a Zionist couple in New York City who went to all the New York public libraries and um, checked my book out and several other books like um, my friend uh, uh, Aya Ganame's uh, These Olive Trees and Linda Sarsour's book mm. and um, tweeted about how they would never be returning these books to try to prevent children from being indoctrinated. So, you know, I, I thought wow. it would be a little bit longer before my book got banned, but it was it was pretty straight out the gate. Oh, that is so, uh, that is painfully done. I th- as infuriating as that is, they are contributing to more copies of the books getting bought. So, oh, so that's kind of like, yeah. <laughs> and that was the reaction of everyone who saw the tweet was like, well, we're, I know what I'm doing. I'm going yeah. to buy books. And then shortly after my book sold out across the country. So, wow. That was some free marketing they gave you. That is some like, amazing wow. price and effect right there. Oh, like, it's, like true, if they had it's d- true. Like if they hadn't tried to stroke their own ego and like get social media points by grabbing the book, you probably we this interview wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have sold out. <laughs> oh no, I'm sure I... you would have otherwise. I'm sure you would have anyway. But this is just like they they, they just they, added to it. They, yeah, know? they they gave you a little little nudge. <laughs> You know, it's super common um, to have people's what? books banned in America these days. And as I've seen with my mm-hmm. queer non-Arab friends, you know, it's it can often um, result in like a small spike of book sales. But unfortunately, ultimately, it like sends the message to mm-hmm. communities around the country that like this is going to warrant criticism or this is going to welcome criticism in your community. So and that's what we call shadow banning. So unfortunately, people mm-hmm. then preemptively take the books off the shelves or preemptively hide them so that they don't get trouble and shortly after this happening i have a friend who's a new york public librarian and she actually told me that there was a Mm -hmm. internal memo that went around that um said that librarians were not supposed to be doing displays um on palestine or israel Mm -hmm. uh, so as to avoid this controversy so you know Mm -hmm. as as much as i love the like spike in attention and the sales and and laugh at how ridiculous it is it's also you know, indicative of the censorship that's happening to Palestinians, like, all over the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah sure. And also yeah. on, like, a specific level, like, we want the book in libraries and not just in, like, commercial bookstores. Like, we want people to be able to access yeah. these books if they can't mm-hmm. buy their own copy, too. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and libraries are such like important parts of community and like you want you want Palestine to you know anything about Palestine to show up like in community centers. Um did your father like did he grow up in Palestine? No. Well, he yeah. um so my grandparents left uh in 48 um during the Nakba okay. and my uh, and they moved to they were married in Jerusalem and they moved to Beirut so my father was born and okay. grew up in Beirut but you know it was a short drive away so he mm -hmm. would go and and spend a lot of time um in his youth in Palestine and with his yeah. grandparents and until 67 and then he was unable to return and and still mm -hmm. has you know tried to go back a few times and has been turned away yeah uh um, and then what are some of the other books that you've published or that, that you've written? So this is my only book that I've written so far. Oh, got you. Know, you. Okay. Crossed. Awesome. But... This is a good start. Like a <laughs> really strong thank you. start. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Writing anything. It took me many, many years to write this one little one, but um, yeah. I do work in publishing and I actually grew up in publishing because in the 70s when my parents came um, to New York, they were really appalled by the representation of Arabs um, in the media and in movies and TV. And, yeah. you know, we were like the bad guys in the Indiana Jones movies. And this was like before hummus was like a trendy, you know, dip at Trader Joe's. Like there, there was really no representation. Yeah. Um, and so they started a, a sort of radical independent publishing press the year that I was born in Brooklyn. It was actually, they were running it out of the basement of Sahadi's for a while. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is like the most Arab thing I've ever heard of. It's like literally underground Sahadi's was like where they kept all their books and would say. store them. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they, we are the interlink. I say we, it's the publishing company that most of my family works for, um, have been in business for 36 years and we're the number one publisher of books with content from the Middle East. So translated fiction, um, cooking, you know, cookbooks, um, embroidery books to trees books, um, you know, you name it, we, we publish it. And, still very small and still very radical but um that's where most of my my family works is for interlink publishing cool i want to ask um i feel like we haven't had a lot of children's book authors specifically on here we have a lot of writers in general but i'm trying to think if we've had another person who specializes in i don't think so like i mean um you know we did that we had that episode at the very beginning um about you know Oh, there's like the dictionary kind of for kids, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've only had that one episode, and then we have um, Danny Ramadan wrote a children's book, but that's not like all he focuses on. So, oh right, I think you're right. Yeah, but I no, I think you're right. Children's authors. So I want to ask some like specific questions about that. And I guess beginning with your childhood, like were were there any children's books you had access to as a kid um, that were dealing either with like Arab and Palestinian identity or with queer identity that um, you, you were able to find and relate to? 
Yeah, so um, the only picture book that I had growing up was called City Secrets by Naomi Shihab Nye, and it came out in 1994. And the next picture book by a Palestinian American to be traditionally published, so published by one of the like major publishers, was my book 30 years later. So I know, I know. I feel like I tell people this and they're like, what? And I'm like, yes, this is a, this is a real problem. Like there yeah. is such a major lack of representation of Palestinian Americans, you know, even despite this like massive movement for more diverse children's books. So growing up, you know, we would get books from the Middle East in Arabic and, and my parents would bring those home and, you know, they published a handful of books, but, you know, it was never something where the characters were identified as Arab or, um, you know, you wouldn't even see a character with like a hijab at all in a, in a children's book. And we're, we're Christian Palestinians, but, um, you know, the only, the closest thing I think we got was like a book that talked about Jesus, <laughs> which was not, you know, the representation I was after. And then in terms of queer books, you know, it was the 80s, I think, when Heather Has Two Mommies was published, and that was a self-published book. You know, that's that's been something that's also been a, a major problem until recently, where there just, there really isn't any queer rep. And now, yeah. luckily, in the last few years, there's so much, and there's so much great queer books out there. Yeah, yeah, for I, sure. I think I, the... not Not just books, but media in general, I mean... We've come a long way from like thinking the L word was the greatest thing ever, and <laughs> to true. today when there's like I can't keep up with all this. It's there's too much. Right. But like I, I suddenly like the words come out of my mouth. I'm like I sound like an old white man where I'm like, is everybody gay in this? You know, like it really. I'm like, how am I saying this? This is wonderful. I'm I'm so grateful. Um, but. Yeah, I think the the change in the media landscape when it came to queerness is something that happens so fast or certainly like within our lifetime. Um, and, and it seems like we've really made some progress there and it only illuminates the areas that we have not made progress and still yeah. really need to work on. Yeah. Uh, do you think that... Um... Well, first of all, like, have, have you been able to, like, talk to kids who have read your book? Have you gotten, like, feedback from your, your kid audience? And what's that been like? Oh, my God. It's the best thing in the world. Like, you know, I I work with grownups all day, and we talk a lot about children's books. But to actually spend time with a bunch of children, it makes me sort of rethink everything about my book and how I present it. Um, I just visited a school this week where I met with, I, th I think it was like a hundred second and third graders. And they, I was very nervous because I was like imagining, you know, as a Palestinian walking into any space, I was sort of imagining that I was going to be like quizzed on Palestinian history. And, you know, like I had to remind myself that like these seven, eight-year-olds like don't have Zionist talking points. And we're like mostly interested in like my puppy and the fart in the book you know like they but it but there was this amazing moment where this little girl she 
came up to me and she was so shy and um and she said i it, like I call my grandfather Jido. Like we use that word at home, mm-hmm. and it was. And then she like ran away and was like, it was just this like moment where it was so incredible. And so I decided to incorporate it into my talk, where I, I projected the glossary of my book, which has like, you know, Jido and Data and like um, Zata, like all these words that you can find in the book, and. I asked, does anyone in the room know what this word means? And it was just her. And she raised her hand and she was like, that means grandfather. And she was so proud. And everyone was like, whoa, how'd you know that? Like, it was just this incredible moment. And I think whenever I talk to children, I'm like talking to my younger self. Yeah. And because I grew up exactly where I live now, which is wild. And I never quite thought I would return to my hometown, but I'm presenting to children who are literally in the same community that I was when I was the only one. And gosh, like talk about healing your inner child. It feels, it feels almost like therapy every time um, I present to kids. That sounds so surreal. Yeah. Yeah. And they have no, (laughs) they have no problem understanding like, what's right and what's wrong and what's fair and what's not fair. You know, it's, it's grownups that really have trouble with that, but children totally understand. Yeah. It was the school itself supportive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, I've had a a mixture of responses. Um, Some schools have just flat out canceled my events and, um, and that's such a shame. Um, some schools wanted me to speak, but only if a rabbi was present, which is a really bizarre thing. What? When, you know, like, do you ask all of your authors to have, to have a religious leader, like a religious leader of not their own religion attend? So that was um, an interesting proposal, which that's I definitely declined. a choice. <laughs> um. But the schools that I've been visiting are because of incredible teachers yeah. who are working super hard to have hard conversations in their classrooms. And it's often the students themselves who are advocating. You know, I, I, I visited a high school a few weeks ago because the students found me online and asked their teachers to bring me in for a discussion you know, which is incredible. Like, when do teenagers ever want, you know, like extracurricular yeah. activities, but it's been incredible. Like the youth are really interested and it's, and it's exciting to see. I'd like Overall, to report on the high school front. So I was, I was teaching at a, I was at physically at a high school in Brooklyn for a GSA conference, uh, teaching a dance workshop, which was interesting but different story anyway i'd like to report there's a lot of free palestine desk graffiti going on um yes but there's still a lot of dicks too you know yeah yeah i'll take it yeah that's fine if dicks are the tax fine yeah like your dick dick graffiti um so i think i think the kids are all right mostly yeah yeah it feels incredible to watch 
like the shifting of a whole generation where I spend a lot of time on TikTok because I find it like quite hopeful and because I love crafting videos and (laughs) I I feel like watching these kids who's who have been told it's too complicated that they would never possibly understand it like within minutes say oh no actually like we've seen this story of colonization historically repeated over and over again and this is just like more american imperialism and i'm like what this took me decades to learn you know and 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 they get it and there's no question of it and it's really really exciting because it it gives me hope hope for the future yeah yeah and it's i mean it relates back to the school system too because i think like a lot of like when people like our ages are saying it's too complicated what they're saying is we didn't learn anything relevant about this in school and um the the media the mainstream media doesn't tell us anything relevant either um which is why the involvement in schools is so important but also it's just weird because like kids kids are like so it's never about it's never actually about how difficult it is to teach kids something it's about how Mm -hmm. the idea of kids makes adults really put up barriers right yeah yeah i didn't know i didn't even know the word colonizer until like way too late in my childhood because like that's never how i mean in school or anything that's never how information was presented or never how anything was acknowledged. There's always like dis- like discoverers or explorers. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, they just came there to vibe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My ex- yeah. my experience in the glorious nation of Texas has always been that colonization was great and it was the golden age of exploration because of it. Right. And right. everyone benefited. And um and you know and now it's like Jesus Christ, what was I being told in these things? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I only did half of my education in the American school system because um, when I was 12, I moved to the UK. And I remember taking a class about um, British decolonization across the world. And it was taught with such pride that, you know, did you know that this little island owned 80% of the world um you know and how like generous they were to like allow these countries to have independence you know sort of one at a time and and learned about that and it was so shocking how how like clear it was that they it was like important to teach nationalism in school to children you know and we see that here and I I would even say even more so here there's this American patriotism um you know that really does a great job of like whitewashing our crimes and history um and currently yeah I find um so I as someone I, I teach dance as teaching artists in the school system and I sometimes can take advantage of the fact that just like no one gives a fuck about the arts so they're like not even looking (laughs) (laughs) um I I, no, I like for instance like I I like teach about Palestine and the occupation in small amounts because it's a dance class but like in teaching Dubke that's Mm. like part of what I talk about and it's not even that like oh, everything is so supportive. It's just like literally no one's paying attention to what I'm doing. They just don't care. 
I hope they never pay attention. Yeah. So it's it's a little like a backdoor entrance into education. Yeah. yeah. Highlighting yeah. the importance of having people um, people represented in the school system itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I yeah. was at a, a school where a child came up to me and she had tears in her eyes and she said, you know, your presentation was the first time I've ever heard an Arabic word spoken in my like 15 years of being in school. And wow. it was just, yeah, like it was really moving, but it also felt really depressing because she was like a senior in high school and just had never, like never, they hadn't even touched on it in any capacity. And, you know, n- not to say that like, school has to cover every single culture but to know that that is a represented culture in the school and that Mm -hmm. you haven't done anything is is really depressing and reminds me of my education yeah oh that would be like really bittersweet and healing in a way it sounds like that that interaction yeah yeah Yeah. just like knowing that you you're the reason like that change for her yeah yeah it's it's been interesting because whenever I've done events like for families like the kids they like love the fart joke in the book and they like want to try dubka dancing and you know it's, it's really like fun and joyful for them and then the parents will come up to me and they're just like falling apart you know mm-hmm. this this grief um that everyone is feeling during this genocide and even though it's like a children's book event people are coming up and sort of crying into my arms and I was like never something that anyone prepared me for you know to do these events that in a way like people would you know ask me a children's book author like how how are we going to stop this what are we going to do and you know, I, I don't have advice. Like I also need that advice. I'm doing all the things I think I can do. And, and yet it continues. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the big question of our time because like with the United States backing, like who's the, and the only way that to really stop it feels like military force, but who's going to go against Israel and the United States, you know, for Palestine? It feels more important than ever to be an American um, because, you know, I have friends who are like, I'm going back to the Middle East, like, forget this. And then I, and then you realize that we have more power. We are the only ones that can stop this. And the only way we can stop this is by putting pressure on our representatives who are supporting this like we need to to break that system that cycle that complete um support of this violence um and i think now it makes me realize like i i can never leave because i will never be more powerful than as an american voter or an american spender Mm -hmm. boycotts here say everything like they work the boycotts that americans start and keep going do work um 
I know. I mean, they wouldn't have instant, made a law against not it if instantly. it didn't. <laughs> right. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, for those who need context, uh, there is a, a law in America that does uh, make, it, make it a punishable act to basically support or uh, boycott Israel in several in on an institutional not, level. Not all states, though. Just, not yeah, I don't want to freak people out if they're not in yeah check your state it's yeah Yeah. unfortunately it's quite a few and um i know in texas for example if you want to be a public educator you have to sign a contract that says you will never participate in the boycott divestment or sanction movement which is you know the nonviolent um collective movement inspired by south african um resistance to apartheid so you know, this is the the non the powerful nonviolent movement that um, Palestinians are calling for, and yet it is deemed so unacceptable by so many politicians in this country. Too spicy for. I Texas. wonder, and I, like, how are pe- how are people going to enforce that anyway? It's basically if you speak I'm out, or you out if you speak out yeah. or are on the yeah. record someplace, what they can do is. You, they can get you fired, but what that also does mm-hmm. is it triggers a clause where you lose your retirement as well. So you just have to, so you have to quietly not buy Starbucks, but you can't be vocal about it. I mean, you can't go on the queer, the queer herbs podcast and you know have somebody on the PTA, <laughs> you know, yeah. F- yeah, listen to it and be offended. I mean, who's? I mean, yeah, it's mm-hmm. unlikely it's going to be us, yeah. but like more likely you, you get on CNN or something and you say you something. Which is silly because we're Americans. We can boycott whatever we want. Yeah. yeah I but... think it's, tell- it's telling how um, artificially oh, uh, like radicalized, like not that's not the right word, how anything related to Palestine is artificially portrayed as radical because I think if that was not the case, like boycotts, I, I could see BDS as a movement being called like, oh, this is so mild and neoliberal. What, you think you're going to do stuff as a consumer, right? Like that would be the, the conversation, but that's not the conversation we're having. We're having like BDS is not a terrorist organization. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh my God. There's also like a thing where like all protest actions are wrong if you don't want the thing, if you don't want the thing to happen, right? So like yeah. this, on the spectrum, it's like, oh no, posting on social media, it's silly, it's performative. What do you think you're doing? You're just a little slacktivist. You go to like non-disruptive protests, like, oh, what are you gonna do? You're just holding up a sign. And then you kind of, and then like on the other end, disruptive protests, like, no, that's too much. You're, you're messing up people's lives. Physical violence, way too much. We won't even talk about that. And then you go right to the middle and it's it's bds and then it's kind of getting both of those things at the same time like it's simultaneously yeah. being portrayed as like very radical to the point where it's criminalized radical. and also but also from like a slightly more maybe like liberal zionist leading audience there's a lot of dismissal of it like oh like it's not going to do anything what are you going to accomplish by right. boycotting a performance or boycotting starbucks or whatever like you're Though these people might be well intentioned, but don't know what they're doing, and it's like, which one is it? Is it is it is it ineffective, or right. is it too extreme? Like, how, yeah, how am I going to explain that? If you're, well, if you're mean... so, like if you're threatened by it, it's clearly gonna it's clearly effective if you're threatened by it. We've well, we've just I think 
saw the results of the Starbucks like quarterly reports and without a doubt the boycotts are working and and Starbucks by the way is not officially on the BDS list they're just yeah. owned by Zionists who support the IOF with fun with profits so the fact that this was done even despite not being on the BDS list and like largely by Gen Z like young people um not getting their like frappa mochaccinos or whatever like it 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 sort of gives you hope and and it makes you realize like you know more action can come in this country from abstaining from buying things than from calling your representatives every single day you know, like the, it's, I guess that's money is power in this country. And, and that's the way we have to start thinking it and start pivoting our action. Yeah, yeah. more capitalism than democracy. So I guess yeah. that's, that's, yeah. I've, that's been, I've been pretty heartened um, in New York. Like when I walk past a Starbucks, it never seems packed anymore. Like I never <laughs> see like, I never see lines, even in the mornings, like, it's just, it's a, it, it's a tiny moment each time I walk past one of like, okay, something's, something's happening. There's still people in there, not too happy with those people, but it's, it's kind of cool. You can note it, like, it is pretty noticeable. Um, also, I'm going to Starbucks shame those people because it's New York City. You have way better choices. All I, over know. Your place. I, I know. I know. Yeah, what are you doing? You're not even like it's not even cheaper than other places. Like there's no, no reason. I I I will I will say like I understand. I mean, boycott anyway. But like yes, I understand. There's not a lot of places to pee. Is an issue in New York. There's oh, not a sure. lot of coffee True. shops and bathrooms. Yeah, but even um, Starbucks, they they like they usually have those codes, and they're like you have to go purchase something and ask for it. Yeah, so like try if you really need to pee. Um, sometimes people post the codes on online. You can like yeah. Google like Union Square Starbucks code. You know, <laughs> yeah. There's other ways. Like use their bathrooms. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Raise their water bill by a few cents. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Right. Is this sad. the start there's, of the PS a... Starbucks campaign? What is this the start of the pee only at Starbucks campaign? <laughs> I, I like it. Like pee only at Starbucks. Don't buy anything. Don't buy I like that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> so hmm. yeah, uh, do you want to? Okay, going back to like the book tour. I know we were we mentioned it kind of briefly, but yeah, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, the book tour coming up, where you're going to be, and all of that? Oh gosh, I should probably look up the exact dates. Um, oh. I am going to be in Portland, Maine um, on February, well done, on Saturday, February 17th, I will be in Portland, Maine at Print a Bookstore, and then they're going to be holding a youth rally down the street that I'm going to be speaking Ooh. at, which I'm very excited about. I thought it was like going to be like teens and twenties, but it turns out it's going to be like, you know, seven year, eight year olds, like holding Aww. protest signs, which oh, I love so much. Oh, I'll, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Crush them with I'll cuteness. be in Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'll be in uh, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts at Cambridge Public Library on Wednesday, February 21st. Um, I'm really excited about that one because we're going to be giving out free books. They, are, they have funded hey. um, the distribution of free books. So if folks sign up for that event, they can come and families can go home with a signed copy of my book. And then I have four dates coming up in New York City over March 16th and 17th, but the final details are TBD on that. Fair enough. Any plans to hit up Dearborn? Oh, I have been, so many people have been saying I need to go to Dearborn and I have a lot of friends there and family. Um, it's not currently planned, but I will get there this year, I think. I think it's just a matter of the right invitation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nadia, you just went there for the first time. Yeah, I went right? to Dearborn for the first yeah. time ever in... Yeah. November for performance at uh, Arab American Museum. Um, and I'm, I'm upset with myself because uh, the book awards were like a bunch of really incredible people uh, were there and speaking. Um, it was right after I booked my flight back. <laughs> like I, I didn't realize oh, that it was, no. was that night and I, I booked my flight out at four and then I was like, damn it, I need to like check schedules before I book flights. I was just like, no, I gotta get back. I gotta oh. get back to New York because I I work the next day, but I'm still kind of like slapping myself for that one. Um, but it, it was it was still good to be there for the time I was. I just wish I had stayed like a few extra hours. Yeah, what does it feel like to be in a majority like Arab place? Yeah, I mean it was. Well, I guess, I guess here, there's neighborhoods here that are like that, right? Like, I'm, I'm pretty close to Bay Ridge. Um, so yes. it's not, like, on a micro level, it's not that um, totally out of the ordinary. Um, I think it's, like, a little, like, it's suburbia, though, right? Like, I think I've never been in, like, such Arab suburbia. <laughs> and um, I grew up in, like, not-so-Arab suburbia. So I, I think, like... There's something about that. Um, but yeah, I was, it was also, I mean, it, it was this November. So it was like a time where, um, you know, like there, there's, there's a lot of like emotions, a lot of mourning, a lot of anger. Um, and it, it did feel appropriate to be in a situation where that's shared. Um, cause I was feeling a little bit, uh, I don't want to say totally isolated in um, my life, but at least a little isolated in my professional life at the time. And that's actually shifted a lot for the worst reasons, right? Because, you know, like how many people have to die before there's a big, a big wake up call um, and a lot more of the population. Um, and I hate to, I hate to put it like this. Like, I hate to be like, oh, I feel kind of more supported and less lonely after you know really terrible things have happened uh to make that the case but at, at, that's just that's just how it went um but yeah at the, at the time it, it was it was really refreshing to be in that situation um and yeah i had a good time there um had a good time with all the people i met there um if you're 
if you're listening to this, um, it was good to meet you there. Um, yeah. So I hope you're, I hope you do an event there sometime. Me too. Me too. I've, I've heard incredible things and yeah, it feels like it would be really nice. You know, I, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, so I, I grew up with a lot of Arabs. And then when I was five, we moved to Massachusetts and then we were the only Arabs and currently still like one of a handful of Arabs in this area. And so I think it's something that never leaves you that searching for community, particularly as, you know, I've come out and like that community has grown smaller and smaller. Yeah. Um, it feels so important to me as I get older to, yeah. to find it. Yeah. Do you want to actually on that note, like before we start recording, we were talking about um, how even just a few years ago, it was really tough to find other queer Arabs. And um, I'm just, just wondering your experience, like, when did you, I guess, start finding that particular community? How how did it happen? When did it happen? Yeah, I, it's so interesting because I'm a I'm a late in life gay. Um, I love those. Yeah, I, I I do too for sure for sure. I mean, I'm sad for my younger self who like missed out on all the good times, but. Um, I, it, which is funny because I grew up in what a lot of people call the lesbian capital of America, sort of Western Mass area. Um, so finding out, like admitting to myself that I was queer was not because of lack of like representation, <laughs> certainly, uh, embarrassingly so. Um, I was constantly surrounded by queer people and all my friends were queer. And a lot of my friends would tell me that they thought I was queer and I was like well that's just because you're queer and I'm cool and you don't think queer like straight people are cool um and it actually took the pandemic interestingly enough um for me to really like take the time to open up to that potential um of course, like, you know, throughout my whole life, I had always been hooking up with people of the same gender. I was just like, but that's, everybody does that, right? Like that, you know, um, <laughs> right? I was like, sure. Um, and then when um, everything locked down, I remember uh, being, I decided to lock down with my dad because my studio apartment was in Boston. It was tiny and I could hear people coughing through the walls and I wanted to be in nature. So I, I came to stay with my dad. And so I was like very much in my childhood bedroom, like bored, spending four months with no one but family members. <laughs> um, and so I decided to like download the apps again mostly because I read an article that like dating during COVID was like being in a Jane Austen novel where you like wrote long letters to each other and went for like long walks in the countryside and that's like that's all I really wanted and um and so I downloaded the app and then because all the universities around here had shut down so most of the young people were gone I ran out of men like I didn't even know that you could get to <laughs> Ender because I have always lived in cities but I literally just like I was like none of these people are acceptable to me 
and I ran out. I even went as far as to having to swipe left on someone from my high school who was using a picture of me and him from 10 years ago. So I literally had to be like, hey, dude, I don't look like this anymore. And you certainly don't look like this anymore. Like, stop lying on Tinder and take my photo down. That's that's a that's a lot of Um, (laughs) Wait, so you're saying you're you're gay from process of elimination. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, kind of kind of that was my gateway drug. Um, yeah, and then uh, I matched with my now partner who, um, of course, we had a bunch of mutuals in common, and they were all encouraging me to go on a date with them. And as much as like my Jane Austen fantasy was like long lasting, like I was like, oh, this is fine. Like this will give me six months to like figure out how I really feel. After I think the third date, I was like, very ready to be intimate <laughs> I was like we have to unpod from our families like so I had to like come out to my family but also unpod from them at the same time and I wow. remember telling my wow. dad and there was like this big silence oh, and God. I was like dad like do you have anything to say and he was like an essential worker Hannah really like he was like more concerned that they were a teacher than oh my that god they were like not a cis man okay oh, that's actually that's actually really wholesome as a response yeah. Yeah. it was that's it was really it sweet was. actually I, I yeah. feel like i feel like you just speed ran like half the lesbian dating experience like running out <laughs> yeah. of running out of people to swipe on yeah. Because the dating population is too low, although you ran onto it on the straight side, so congratulations on that achievement. Yeah. And then you know, achievement first time. Unlocked. Yes, and then third third date, you all congratulations. You did it yeah. in the pandemic. You yeah. were yeah. grand yeah. lesbian yeah, dating on hard mode. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I was like, the second the like switch flipped, I was like, oh okay, yeah. So we're this is forever, I guess. And yeah. Um, you know, we very quickly, because it was the pandemic, had to um, meet each other's families because we were in these pods. Yeah, so basically, yeah. like our families potted together after dating for like oh three God. weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's um, so cute. It was. And they, you know, get along really well with my family and I get along really Amazing. well with theirs. And it's yeah. it's now been almost four years. So. Yeah, that could either be like incredible or a total disaster, and I'm so glad right. it like worked out. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It, and like, so I guess yeah. So since then, um, I'm sure you've like found really good queer Arab community too. Like, I know it's mostly mostly lives online. Um, that's yeah. in for me too. Um, but like in New York, so many good queer Arab spaces that like I never dreamed were there a few few years ago (laughs) oh yeah I I know I guess it's not yeah I definitely went to my first so there's like a very very large like lesbian and um like Mm non-binary community out here and I remember going with them to like our first event together and it was like a femme beach day and 
particularly because there was like so many amazing like fat femmes I was like I remember walking on the beach and just being like I'm home like this is this is it this is amazing and I yes it was it was an incredible feeling and I have since like made better friends than I have ever before and I felt like this whole community was like welcome we've been waiting for you You (laughs) I love it I love it yeah so that was amazing and and in terms of queer Arabs it was funny because Mm -hmm. you know my partner was like you like you know you it's all white queers here like we Mm -hmm. like you I want you to know the feeling of like belonging and I want you to have that even more and so they started doing research and actually found your Mm -hmm. podcast which is how (laughs) I started listening to your podcast oh my god this makes me so happy (laughs) which was amazing um yeah and then I slowly started um finding more folks and and there's even you know there's only like four um in my area but we meet up and we we talk about it and you know it's just been really incredible to have that because it's there's always been parts of myself that I've had to sort of break off into different identity groups I have like Mm -hmm. my fat liberation groups that I'm a part of but there are no Arabs there and then I had my you know queer local groups and the femme groups and there were no Arabs there and then I have my Arab identity which was very straight and so it was kind of like cutting off pieces of myself wherever I was in a certain space and like trying to be fulfilled as a whole and it has only been recently, like in the last few months that I guess I fully come, like come out to my queer friends as being a Palestinian and having these beliefs and, you know, come out to my, you know, fat groups that like fat liberation and Palestinian liberation are entwined, you know, and finally finding queer Arabs who like understand what the events that have happened in the last few months mean for us as not just queer people, but as Arabs and, and how dangerous it is even more so to be an Arab in this country. So it, I have certainly lost people along the way, um, but it feels really, really great to be my whole self and bring my whole self uh, to these spaces. That's, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. everything. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, we talk a lot on here about compartmentalization, how, like, we've we've all been forced to compartmentalize ourselves for most of our lives in that way. And it's, it's incredible to find context where you don't have to do that. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that it was possible, but my family has, like, fully embraced my queerness in like such a wonderful way you know they're like still working on pronouns but like they're getting there you know they're getting there and I have found that being Arab is so queer like there's so much about first of all about the culture but I'm also like doing all of this um learning about how the like homophobic tendencies 
in the Middle East are like they really root from British colonization, you know, mm-hmm. and that like even and French. how yeah, and, and the French, <laughs> right? Yeah. But like even how like Americans like don't touch each other. Yeah. in it you know it, they don't have the same level of like physical affection because you know I think rooted in homophobia because they're so terrified of like you know that they're like part of this puritanical culture whereas like Arabs were so touchy and were so um physical in that way even you know people of, of any gender yeah and that to me like it sort of embodies a bit of queerness in it. You know, it, it makes me feel like if you went to the Middle East, you know, hundreds of years ago, that this just everybody might have been queer. You know what it reminds me of? Um, like in, in Beirut, when there's just like guys double riding motorcycles together. <laughs> yeah. um, and like I, I totally. feel like I feel like in, in, in the US you'd have to have like a sign that's like no homo on that. Yeah, yeah, or the kissing, the yeah. kissing that happens. Um, yeah, there's a lot of gender stuff actually that I think in the U.S. would be coded as yeah. being queer, but just is. Yeah, you know. I want to ask um, about uh, if you want to talk a little bit more about fat liberation organizing, just because we haven't talked so much about that in other episodes on this podcast and how that's intersected uh, with like racial politics and Arabness as well as queerness or not. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting because, you know, I think that learning about fat liberation largely came from a lot of sort of Western academics. I think a lot of food trauma came from my, Arab family, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of fat phobia um, in my family. And I think it's also rooted in sexism and about being um, a, a certain size in order to be eligible for men. Um, and when I started learning more about that and unpacking that and realizing that like the European beauty standards are tied into our obsession as a culture with thinness, I realized that actually, like, as Arabs, we will never meet these beauty standards. And even if we are thin Arabs, like, the way that our hips are shaped or our noses or, you know, our, our cheeks or our lips, like, all of these things um, are also considered unacceptable. So, so the root of fat phobia is white supremacy and and is inherently tied with racial bias in this country and mm-hmm. you know I think I realized it the most when I was doing research for my book and I found this picture of my data um and her mother and her mother like has my exact body and this was not you know this was a woman who like worked on a farm in Jerusalem was it, they weren't like a wealthy that she wasn't like a woman of leisure, (laughs) you know, like it made me realize that like, regardless of like a lifetime of the pursuit of thinness, that this, this body was so deeply ingrained in my DNA Mm -hmm. that I was always going to look this way. And like, 
my ancestors knew that my family knew that like it's funny every single like branch of my family has like one fat one and like that's just it like it's just it and and yet like that one fat one has gone through such shame or disappointment and you know i've had an eating disorder and and had to wrangle with that and yet here's this woman who is like living proof and evidence that like genetically this is my body this is my natural state and like this is how i should have always existed and so i find that super liberating like it all kind of ties together in my mind where you know if i never like i'm never going to be the ideal no matter mm. what i do no matter how thin i get like i will still be arab and you know um it's and i there's just no point in wasting any more effort on trying to to get there and and tragically so many women in my family have wasted lifetimes of the the like pursuit of thinness and whiteness yeah yeah, yeah we got, got a lot of internalized internalized shit and like on appearance and beauty standards in a lot of different ways and it, it that really clearly relates to trying to approximate like whiteness or european ideals right. yeah and there's like the aunties who are like no eat more eat more but at the same time are like you're yeah. too fat yeah <laughs> You're like, what do you want from me? Which one is it? It's like the BDS thing. Like, which one is it? Right, right. Like, just pick a side. I know. You're too thin, or oh, you love it. I love you. Eat more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I put that in my book. <laughs> yeah, it's like only recently about certain things about my appearance and stuff that I've, I've attributed it to like oh this is this comes from my ancestor and i think that's so beautiful to kind of like to acknowledge that yeah i think like i have my ancestors nose or you know whatever it is yeah yeah don't even get me started on the intergenerational trauma <laughs> oh, <no>. got that too <laughs> yeah we get the <laughs> get the good and the bad yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah if people want to find you online where where do you usually like post stuff yeah i'm on instagram and uh you know twitter and facebook and i just secretly downloaded tiktok i don't really post much but i do watch a lot of crafting videos and what they where can they find you at on these wonderful fine platforms <laughs> I'm at Hannah Michelle Beck. Uh, that's it. And my website is hannahmichellebeck.com. I was going to ask, and where can they purchase your book? Anywhere books are sold, but I would prefer an independent bookstore. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. We're so happy. We're always happy to have uh, a listener come on as a guest. So. I'm such a huge fan. Thank you so much. I feel like you are all part of my like queer journey. So this feels like a really special moment. Hey, Alia, where, where really can people amazing. find us? Oh, thanks for asking, Ellie. Um, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs. And um, you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. We keep striving to monitor that email more. Um, and yeah, 
our website is thequeerarabs.com. You can, if you're listening to this, you already know. You can listen to this on any podcast app. So, um, yeah, I'm so happy our friend connected us. Like, this is incredible. It's so meaningful to have you on. So, thank you. Thank you.